Don't you love just getting to like sit together as a congregation and read decent chunks of the scriptures together and just think about it as you read and let the Holy Spirit point little things out to you? I, I personally, I really enjoy that. I, I feel like that's, I, I know that's something historically that the early believers did. And, uh, you know, Paul instructed Timothy, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. And that is something that we are returning to. Uh, let's look at the book of Luke together. I had a, a couple things that really made my heart rejoice this week I wanted to share with you. And then we'll, we'll look at some of the material in Leviticus and see how it can apply to us and also how we can apply our lives to it. In uh, Luke 21, verse 24, this is the... Uh, Question of the week <laughs> from our, our e-newsletter, Luke twenty one twenty four. It says that it's uh, Yeshua prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem and the second temple's demise and the exile of the Jewish people, the great exile. And uh, he concludes by saying, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles or the nations until the times of the Gentiles, or the nations, are fulfilled. So he says, they will die violently, they will be exiled into all the nations, and Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What did he mean by the times of the Gentiles? That may be important because it indicates that whenever that time period is over, Jerusalem is not going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles anymore, and their time is going to be over. It may mean that it will be the time of Israel again. Uh, There's a correlative concept to this in Paul's writings in uh, his letter to the congregation in Rome, uh, chapters 9 to 11. I've heard that statistically these are the chapters that get the least amount of airtime generally in Bible school because there's some puzzling stuff in here. You know, if you think that Israel doesn't have a place in God's big plan anymore, then Romans 9 to 11 doesn't make sense, especially if you read it literally. But, but thank God, you know, in the last 50 years since Israel became a nation, these chapters have been getting more airtime and they actually make a lot of sense too. Uh, Romans 9 to 11 is all about Israel. And uh, Paul uses a fascinating phrase in uh, Romans chapter 11, towards the end. Uh, Romans eleven twenty-five. he says, I don't want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you won't be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. So again, he use, he, he, he's giving a time frame here. He's saying that there's this time frame in which the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles, will come in, assumedly to the kingdom, they'll be grafted into Israel, and then you can infer from that 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 partial hardening on Israel will be ended, that God will once again turn to Israel, that that hardening will be removed, that there'll be a great revelation of Messiah, and that revival will break out amongst the Jewish people. So these, these are connected concepts. The exciting thing is, Jerusalem is not trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Since 1967, Jerusalem has been under the control of the state of Israel. Now, yes, the U.S. is pushing to divide Jerusalem. Yes, there is a, a structure on the Temple Mount that is not authorized by God. Yes, it's messy. But the fact is, Jerusalem is under control of the Jewish state again. 
since 1967. And, you know, you could, you could look at that and say, perhaps this times of the Gentiles was over in 1967. That could be the case. Since 1967, God has begun to really move amongst the Jewish people. Uh, many Jewish people have come to Yeshua as the Messiah. Uh, rabbis will be praying Shacharit. They'll be praying the traditional morning Jewish prayers in the morning. And Yeshua will appear to them while they're praying. Uh, there, there are accounts of things like this. Uh, one rabbi, Yeshua actually appeared to him in a vision for several mornings running while he was praying. And that was how he came to faith in Yeshua as the Messiah. Wow, this, that's just one incident of many. So since 1967, there has been a real awakening. However, I don't think we've seen the greater part of it yet. Uh, if the prophecies in the remainder of the New Testament have yet to happen, like Paul talking about the temple and some things that are going to happen with the temple, then Israel is still going to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount. And, you know, if, you, if you're reading some of the recent happenings and events in Israel and the different organizations that are working there, they are, they are preparing priests for when they rebuild the temple to do their thing. And uh, we'll have to be watching for that to see how it plays out. But what it tells me is that we are living in a, a very important time in history right now. And uh, it's going to be getting even better. And I really believe that if we want to be on the cutting edge of what God is doing, if we really want to be like savvy with what the Holy Spirit is, is speaking to Messiah's people, then part of that may be God's plan for Israel. Part of that may be the Jewish people. In fact, I would even say that the Jewish people may become very central to what the Holy Spirit is uh, speaking to the body of Messiah. Um, and that's why we're here. That's what we're all about. Uh, that is... That's like part of the banner that the Father has given us to fly here in Prince Albert. It's, it's what we can offer to the, the greater body of Christ. And uh, I just pray that he'll continue to show us how we can serve, how we can reach out, how we can be that shining light, and uh, how we can move together as the whole body of Christ into the future, what God has for us here in the city. So that, that excites me, just to know that, that that's the time frame we're in right now. Uh, Luke chapter 21 uh, Yeshua is talking about end of days events, uh, things in the Akhari Tayyamim, and he gives a prayer here, something that we can be praying on a regular basis. In Luke 21, verse 34 and on. Actually, yeah, we'll, I'll read you the first couple of verses here. He says, Be on guard so that your hearts won't be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. So he's saying, be careful so that your heart doesn't get all like weighted down with, uh, you know, when you just kind of lose your focus, um, when you become kind of in a, a mental stupor or spiritually, when you just get so worried that you forget what's most important. And that day won't come on you suddenly like a trap. How many of you have seen like a gopher trap or a, a beaver trap or maybe even a bear trap? We, we had some of those on the farm growing up and I would set those things and then I would, they're scary to set you've got to put your foot down on it and press down hard and then you, you pop open those metal jaws and you set it and I mean man you're, just, you're scared and then you put the stick in and it goes and just grabs it like that eh? and Yeshua is using that analogy for uh, thing, events that will happen in the future he says so that day won't come on you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth but what's our response to be? keep on the alert at all times praying praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place. 
praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So that is something that we can be praying for on a regular basis. That he will give us spiritual strength. That he'll be keeping us physically fit also to escape whatever events may take place and to stand before him when he returns. Now here's, here's something interesting. If, you know, and, and this, is, this is just something that's up for conversation, uh, up for ongoing dialogue. But I'm kind of, uh, something I've been contemplating is, you know, with this concept that Yeshua is going to come back before the Great Tribulation or whatever and rapture his people out, and then, you know, and then he'll come back again seven years after that for the big finale, I'm thinking, if that were the scenario, I don't know if we'd have to be praying this. Because if, if you look at the context there, he's talking about momentous events, like troubling times for the people of God. And in that context, he's saying, pray so that you'll have strength to escape them. So whatever the case may be, that is something that we can be praying on a regular basis. My brother Colin actually wrote out that verse in the, with big red letters, and he put it on our fridge at my mom's place like five or ten years ago. And you know, when you're sitting at the kitchen table every morning eating breakfast, you, you know, your mind starts to wander. So you look around and there's that verse. Well, I have that verse memorized. I had that verse memorized after a while without even trying to. So that one really stays in my mind. Uh, something I love about Luke is how he gives this really personal glimpse into the life of our Savior. He has some material that the other synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew and Mark, don't include. And I wanted to, I wanted to point a couple of those things out. In uh, Luke 23... Verse 31, it has this personal little, little dialogue that the Master has with uh, Simon Peter, Simon Kepha. He says, Simon, Simon, look, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Okay. You know, the, the simple fact there is he prayed for Simon, his disciple, Right? But the greater fact is, we have a Savior who lives to intercede for us. Like, the Messiah is praying for you right now, I believe, at the throne of God. Because he lives to intercede for you. Just think about that for a second. How does it feel to know that the Son of God himself, who has been invested with all authority, is praying for you? Like, he's totally on your side. He is so backing you. With, with, With him for us, like, who can be against us, eh? So, I love how that personal word that Yeshua spoke to uh, Shimon can also apply to each one of us. So we, let's remember that when we're going through tough times or uh, tests or whatever. We have a Savior who's thinking about us and praying for us. Um, another personal insight here is in Luke 24, 27. You know this, this concept of midrash, the Hebrew word midrash, it's like sk- scripture-based discussion, uh, I'm kind of like guiding us through a midrash right now even. It talks about what happens when Yeshua joins your midrash. <laughs> In Luke 24, um, 30, uh, what is it, 37 did I say? 27, yeah. <laughs> it says, this is what happens. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to him the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So what happens when Yeshua comes alongside us when we're discussing the Word or studying in our private study times or whatever? He, he, he comes alongside us and he begins to point out all the stuff about himself in all the scriptures. I, I, like, uh, I like the way uh, Ryland's 
uh, paraphrase kind of built on that. He said, beginning from the book of Genesis, he, he, he went over passage after passage with them and he, he showed them how they all pointed to him. So hopefully, even as we read through the law, as we read through the prophets, we can really be watching for how this points to the man who has captured our hearts, our, uh, our Savior who has betrothed us to himself with that last cup at the Passover Seder. Hopefully we can be watching for his glory in these writings, because that's when it really comes alive. And uh, Yeshua, we do invite you to continue uh, coming alongside us and joining our midrashes and, and, and revealing yourself to us as we, as we study the word. Uh, another, really, another really personal uh, glimpse I like in here is in 24 verse 30. It says, When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed. He said a blessing to God, and we do that very same blessing over bread to this very day. We'll be doing it in half an hour. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And it uh, specifies that again in verse 35. It says, They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them when? In the breaking of the bread. Have you ever wondered about that? I mean, what was it about the master? There was something about how he broke bread that was like a hallmark trait of his. There was something about how he said the bracha, he said that blessing to God, Hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz, who brings forth bread from the earth, that was just, it was a special way Yeshua did it. And I, I, it doesn't have any record of how, how that was. But to me anyway, what that can remind me of is every time we break bread together as a fellowship, every time we say that blessing, we can remember this is special. This was an event in which our Savior revealed Himself in His post-resurrection form. So uh, let's remember that even as we break bread in half an hour or whatever. Just be watching for our Savior. There's something about Him behind that. Yeah. Also, uh, this is actually an instance where Yeshua is just, he comes shining through in his Jewishness. You can totally see the Hebrew culture here. And in fact, I think uh, the Arabic-based Muslim culture is closer in this one than often we are as uh, evangelicals. In, in Luke 24, verse 36, what's the first thing Yeshua says to his disciples when he appears to them? <laughs> he says, Shalom to you. <laughs> Isn't that cool? In Arabic, I guess he would have said, Salam Alaikum. And in Hebrew, he said, Shalom Aleichem. So in Hebrew, it's Shalom Aleichem, Shalom to you. Arabic is Salam Aleikum. So that's, I just think that's cool that that was the greeting that Yeshua chose to say hi to his disciples with when he appeared to them. And that's why I love saying Shalom to my fellow brothers and sisters in the faith. Because it's, a, it's like proclaiming Yeshua is alive from the dead. He is risen. Every time we greet each other with Shalom, we're celebrating the fact that we have a Savior who is alive forevermore. <laughs> uh, at the end of Luke, Yeshua gives us, as a messianic community, uh, a mission. In verse 47, he says that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So that brings us up to the present, doesn't it? And uh, something that really jumped out at me is how it wasn't just a free package deal of forgiveness. Yes, God offers us forgiveness as a free gift. There's nothing we can do to gain his favor. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. But what did he say preceded being forgiven of our sins? Repentance. Yes. What does repentance mean? 
Well, it means turning around, making a 180 degree turn, making an about face, away from stuff that God doesn't approve of, things that he has specified is wrong in his word, and turning to him, and turning wholeheartedly to embrace his righteousness, and to a righteous lifestyle. And uh, if you read the book of Luke in context, that original Jewish context, then repentance also includes returning to his Torah, and learning about God's commandments, learning how they apply to our lives. We, we can't truly repent without embracing the Word of God and incorporating it into our lifestyle. And that includes some of God's commandments that maybe over the, over the centuries we've lost touch with is the body of Christ. And that's something he's restoring. And I love that. I just love that. Um, par- part of this that really grabs my heart that I want to experience more of is in Luke twenty four forty nine. He says, Look, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you're to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And I don't know about you, but there's just something about the concept of a cloak. Like being given a cloak, you know, it reminds me of like knights in medieval times or um, some type of like uh, ultra-spiritual metaphysical thing or something, I don't know. But just the concept of like he has this clothing of power that he wants to give his disciples. And they didn't have it at that time. And he gave them directions for how they would get there. And, you know, when I think about my own life, I, I see a certain degree to which I'm like growing in discipleship, to, in which I'm, I'm representing Messiah. But I know there's more. I know there's more for me. I know there's more for us as a congregation. There's more to that, to being cloaked in that power from on high. And uh, it encourages me that Yeshua took his disciples through a period of training and they had to follow his direct instructions and then it came. And I really believe that I'm going to experience that. I believe that we're going to experience this, that as we continue to grow in discipleship and, and go through the training that he is taking through us on a, on a daily basis as individuals and families, on a, on a weekly basis as, as a congregation here, he is going to give us that cloak of power. He is going to enable us to, to represent him to the world around us, to confer his blessing on situations that are negative situations, to, to lay our hands on people and heal them, to, uh, to do the same stuff that Messiah did, and even greater stuff than that. And that's where we're headed. And so I just wanted to point that out as an encouragement. And let's just keep moving in the direction that he's taking us. There is more to be had, more to be experienced. Let's jump back to uh, Leviticus now. Uh, Leviticus 25, and we'll look at a couple things in that regard. I love this chapter about the Jubilee year. It says every 50 years on the uh, annual clock, they would hit the Jubilee year, and several things would happen across the country. It was like the economic reset button. All the debts were canceled. How would the banks like that, hey? If in Canada today, every 50 years, everybody's debts were canceled. Like, how would that overhaul the Canadian economic system? Wow. Um, Also, if you were like an indentured slave, if you were a servant uh, because you couldn't pay off your debt, so you went into slave labor to someone, you went free. Also, on a property level, uh, it doesn't matter what happened in the last last 50 years, uh, what type of mortgage you had, whatever, how the bank foreclosed on it, however many resales there were since the foreclosure, it goes back to you. It goes back to your orig- the original family ownership. So uh, an example of that would be my great-grandparents on my mom's side came to the Blaine Lake area, actually the Oscar Lake area originally, which is close to Blaine Lake, and they homesteaded there. 
And uh, our family homestead, uh, five miles south of Blaine Lake, was registered in 1906. And it's still in the family. Um, Genevieve and I live there. Uh, our, farm, our, our family continues to work that farm. So it, it's, been, it's been over 100 years now in the family. So let's just say that my uh, grandfather, uh, my great-grandfather, he, he, he homesteaded there. He broke the virgin sod. Time went on, um, let's say in the 19... 90s there was a recession and several years where the debts became just too much the crops were failing and the prices were poor and the bank foreclosed on the farm right the bank foreclosed we lost the farm uh he had to end up let's say going to saskatoon and getting a getting a labor job or something and times would have been tough i mean you know a farmer when you farm it's in your blood um, I know that from my, my dad and my grandpa. I mean, he's in his mid-80s and he just loves being on the farm. He loves helping out however much he can. And uh, you would just be like pining away in this urban setting for the farm. And let's say the Jubilee year comes in 2006. Let's say it's been a decade since the farm was foreclosed on. You get to go back to the farm. It, it reverts back to your family. And that's the way it worked for century after century in ancient Israel. And there's some really smart uh, strategy in there in terms of uh, engineering like civic life and property rights and uh, even the interplay between classes in terms of making sure that nobody gets so wealthy that they just gain control of half a country and end up enslaving everyone with minimum labor jobs or something. Uh, there's some really great wisdom things in here. But here's the cool thing. There's a bigger level going on here. There's, okay, none of that stuff applies to us because we don't currently live in Israel. But there are some spiritual applications here because our experience of salvation in Messiah is our personal jubilee. When we receive Yeshua, our debts of sin are canceled and we go free. When we receive Yeshua, we are no longer slaves. We walk out free men and free women from under the domain of Satan. So areas where he controlled us through addictions, through um, relational dysfunction, through negative emotion that we just can't get out of, that's over. That's the jubilee for you. And that is something that he offers each one of us. And the jubilee was started by two things. It was started by the blast of a shofar, a trumpet, and that is what God sounds in each one of our lives. He sounds his trumpet in each one of our lives. It's his voice. When we, when we tune in our spiritual radios to the FM dial that Messiah speaks through, this, this FM dial right here in the Holy Spirit, we hear the voice of the Son of God like a shofar and it sets us free and it brings us life and we walk out of our graves of addiction and dysfunction and whatever. That's the good news for Prince Albert. The Jubilee is available when you want to take it. And when did the Jubilee happen? It says it happened on the 10th day of the 7th month of the year, which is the civic new year in the fall. And that's the Day of Atonement. And Genevieve pointed this out to me this week and I'd never noticed that before. How does that apply to each one of us in terms of our salvation story? The Day of Atonement, that's about when, you know, how Messiah is our atonement, how he, he suffered on our behalf so that we could go free, so that we wouldn't have to receive the, in many ways the negative consequences of our sins. That tells me that there is a very strong connection there between Messiah's atonement and experiencing the Jubilee in our personal lives. Now, Here's the, here's the problem too. We, we look at that and we say, yes, it's for me. And it is. But 
we come from Western culture that's very individualized. We are often conditioned from an early age to think that it's all about us and, 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 and the universe and our government and, and, and everything else revolves around me, right? The big me. But that's not the case. Uh, when you read the Torah, you learn that family is very important to God. You learn that He thinks in terms of cities and how cities respond to Him. We learned about that from our readings last, book, last week in the book of Luke. So we learn from this Jubilee passage that Messiah's salvation is not only for me as an individual. It is for my family. It is uh, for my marriage. It is for the city of Prince Albert. And it's something that we can be praying for. We can let our voices be like those shofars that kick off the year of Jubilee as we, as we cry out to God. So we're going to continue to do that. And we're going to press in in that regard. Well, I just love that. Um, it's highly probable that Messiah will return on a jubilee year that would fulfill quite a few of these passages on a very literal level, aside from the more allegorized salvation level. Uh, some of the things that would then happen would be, it talks about people going back to their ancestral property, uh, the family homestead. What is the ancestral property of Israel? It is the land of Israel. What is the homestead of the Jewish people? It's that little country in the Middle East surrounded by all those huge uh, Muslim countries that want to destroy it. When Messiah comes back, what do you think the chances are that his people are going to go home? Very high. Uh, Yeshua even said, in, you know, when he comes back, it'll be to the sound of what? The, yes, the, the, a big trumpet. The great shofar. I don't know, maybe we'll all be putting our hands over our ears when we hear that thing. I mean, it is going to resound across the planet. And he's going to kick off the ultimate jubilee. And all of God's people are going home. And I truly believe that that doesn't only mean the Jewish people, it also means those who have been grafted in, who are co-heirs with Israel. So there may be a whole lot of people in the land of Israel doing that, during that thousand-year reign of Christ, prophesied in Revelation 20. There's something else in here. In Luke 24, 21, there's a cool connection here. Luke 24, 21, I'll just read it to you. Um, these two disciples are walking with the Master and they're saying, we were hoping that it was going to be Him who would redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. So what was their hope in Messiah? That He would redeem Israel. That's correct. Was that a bad hope? Was that off base? No, it wasn't. They just had the time frame wrong. Yeshua didn't redeem Israel as such with his first coming, but I guarantee you that he will in his second coming. And we usually think of redemption in terms of personal redemption, like we talked about, right? But there's a greater element of redemption that's very clearly specified in this Torah portion. I love it. Uh, look at Leviticus 25, verses 24 and on. This gives us, I think this is even the original mention of redemption. Now, you know, in terms of interpreting scripture, uh, when a term is first mentioned, it has a lot of weight. It's the law of first mention. And so this is one that we want to pay a lot of attention to. Uh, the Hebrew word for redemption is ge'ulah. Can we all say ge'ulah? Ge'ulah. And it's a very beautiful word in Hebrew. Uh, sometimes parents will name their girls ge'ulah. And uh, it sounds nicer in Hebrew than in English, I think, doesn't it? <laughs> but anyway, it talks here about uh, redemption. And interestingly enough, it's not talking about personal redemption. It's talking about the redemption of the land of Israel. So that tells us if Yeshua is our redeemer, then he will also come to redeem the land of Israel from every 
false owner from every false claim on that property. So, you know, all of these debates right now in the Middle East about who gets what, he's going to settle all that. That's part of the good news of Messiah. That is part of the hope that we cherish in him. Okay. Share with you one thing about uh, the place of ceremony in our lives as God's people. I'll share with you something about the blessing, and then we'll finish. Uh, there's this itty-bitty mention in this parsha about God's Shabbat, which is a sanctuary in time, you know, the Sabbath, and uh, his sanctuary in space, his, his mikdash is the Hebrew word. Can everybody say mikdash? Yeah, it's in Leviticus 26, verse 2. Really simple. Verse 1, he talks about false forms of worship and superficial expressions of spirituality that are not sanctioned for his people. And then he gives, and then after he kind of wipes the slate of the counterfeits, he gives the truth. He says, You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am Yahweh. And then he, he starts into the blessings. So here's the cool thing. He does give us a sanctioned form of spirituality. And it does include the Shabbat, the weekly Sabbath. The Sabbath is a sanctuary in time. I love that. You know, there's not currently a temple standing in Israel that you can go up to or whatever. Um, You know, some people would say that a church or a synagogue is a sanctuary, and to some degree, that makes sense. But what we do have, no matter where we are on the planet, is a 24-hour sanctuary in time. And it comes around right on schedule every week. And we are in that sanctuary in time with the creator of the universe right now. It just gives you this heightened sense of holiness. And uh, I wanted to just share with you for a minute about ceremony and ritual in general. Uh, often if we, if we come from a Protestant background, especially from an evangelical Christian background, we, 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 we don't have a lot of ceremony, do we? Uh, most of that's being left, left behind. You know, we leave that for the Catholic Church or whatever. If you come from a high church background, I, I've heard you have more, more ceremony. But I wanted to read you an interesting uh, quote from a book. Um, it's, a, it's by an author named Robert Bly. Uh, he's not a believer in Messiah, but he's uh, very intelligent. He's, he's leading a men's movement in Western culture of men recovering their masculinity. And uh, there's some things in here I wouldn't recommend. He cites a lot of uh, ancient mythology and things like that. But in, in one section in here, he, uh, he, he, he quotes another uh, professor talking about the place of, of ritual and ceremony. In, in, the lives, in our lives as humans. I wanted to share this with you for your, for your consideration. Um, he mentions that Victor Turner has recovered in recent decades the almost forgotten concept of ritual space. Now let me ask you, is there a place for ritual space in the Torah? Yes, there is, right? Okay. Humans being, human beings enter and leave ritual space over a ceremonial threshold or limit. Okay, we, we know the word lemon from preliminary, right? Uh, before you start on something, you sometimes will make preliminary cons, con, uh, comments, and then you'll cross the lemon or the threshold into the, to the main part of what you're saying. So human beings enter and leave ritual space over ceremonial threshold or lemon. Such ritual space can also be called liminal space. Before one enters it, one undergoes some ritual preparation, and the physical spot also requires some preparation to set it apart. Inside that ceremonial place, both time and space become changed, different from what they are in a profane place. 
This is so true when we're talking about the Shabbat. Like, you know, when, we, when the sun sets on Friday evening and begins the biblical Sabbath, when we, when we pray together, perhaps the lady of the household will light the traditional Sabbath candles, we're, we're crossing a limit. We're crossing over into ritual time. And uh, what he says here is very true. It's like time and space become changed. They're different than what they are in a profane place. Change or transformation can happen only when a man or woman is in ritual space. Entering, one first needs to step over a threshold by some sort of ceremony. And second, the space itself needs to be heated. When he talks about heated, he talks about just like when we come into a place of prayer, I think, and like your spirit just begins to get revved up. You become more fervent. And that's true. You know, let's say when we begin Shabbat, you don't just do it as a ritual. You engage your heart. You, you pray on a deep level. You, your spirit becomes hotter for God, if I could use that term. And I, I think that could be what he's referencing. Uh, a man or woman remains inside this heated space for a relatively brief time, in this case, 24 hours out of every week, and then returns to ordinary consciousness to one's own sloppiness or dullness. And of course, that's not entirely true. But, you know, when we are in our work world or whatever, it does sometimes feel a bit different than when we're, you know, a congregation or whatever. The Catholic Church remembered ritual space in the Latin Mass, but for Protestants, it fell into oblivion. With exceptions, Protestantism has spread its ignorance of ritual space everywhere in the world. Living in an age that has lost the concept, we can easily make two mistakes. We provide no ritual space at all in our lives, and so remain cool, or we stay in it for too long. Some fundamentalists insist on remaining for 40 years in ritual space without an exit. No sloppy humanness allowed. If a person enters no ritual space, he or she remains soft clay. If one stays too long, the human being ends up as a cracked pot, overbaked and blackened. So, so that, that, that's an interesting perspective from a, a secular uh, anthropologist in this case. And... You know, when I read that, there was something, something rang deep inside of me. I, I, I thought, you know what, that's true. Uh, in my late teens, I rebelled. I didn't rebel against the authority of my parents. I didn't rebel against God and the truth of his word. But I rebelled against my culture to a certain degree. Because there are certain things in Western culture that are just not cool. And they have very little value. Uh, I just, I felt this void for something more substantial in terms of my expression of faith, uh, how I did life, even our family life. I'll give you a little example, okay? Uh, birthdays. In our household, we do birthdays, but it would consist of, okay, you know, my family like gives me a card or two. We have a cake, we light some candles, they sing happy birthday and it's over. And something in my soul was just repelled by that because it was so shallow. And I said, you know what? If this is what a birthday is, I don't want to do it. What kind of lame tradition is this? And I, I'm not poo-pooing that, right? I, we still do birthdays. We sing happy birthday. And I love cake. So I'm not saying that's bad. This was something I was working through as a teenager, right? But like, uh, I, or okay, materialism. I rebelled against materialism. I went through everything I owned and I either threw out most of it, gave it away, or, or sold it. I had like my clothes and my books left and a limited amount of clothing at that. I just wanted to live simple for a couple of years and see what it felt like, hey? And it was a good experience. Anyway, this was part of my process. But you know, instead of just saying, let's ditch the birthday concept, I told my family, you know, I want to do birthdays, but I want it to be meaningful. I want to have meaningful tradition. I want to have ceremonies that are valuable and that will, that will add value to our lives. So we started new traditions for birthdays after that. 
Um, for a couple of years, I was like, no cake, no candles, no happy birthday song. I forbid it. I don't want to hear it, right? I said, if you want to wish me happy birthday, try to do it in a personal way. If you want to give, write me a card, like, make me a card, you know? I don't want a Hallmark card. Make me a card and, and write something meaningful in it. So, you know, so my, my family, actually, we started doing that more. They, would, they wrote me, like, personal notes about what they appreciated about me. We, we started this tradition where on someone's birthday, we'll get together as a family and we'll take turns saying what we appreciate about that person. We'll review the last year of life, the, the highs and the lows, and we'll pray for that person at the end. And we'll give them cards that have meaningful content in them. And yeah, I, you know, I like cake, so we kind of brought that back and all of that stuff, right? But, but that would be an example of how often in Western culture, we, it's like we have white flower culture instead of whole wheat culture. Do you know what I mean? And uh, something I love about the Torah is it brings a certain level of structure into our lives that I believe is healthy. It enhances family life. It helps us stay synced with God and coming back to Him on a regular basis. And there's room to get creative, to, to make, make valuable ceremony. Another example of this is uh, coming of age. Uh, in our culture, we've realized we have men who are in their 40s and 50s and they are still little boys walking around in grow, grown men's bodies. They're immature. They think the world revolves around them. They're just there to get what they can. And no one has ever initiated them into manhood. Uh, a community of full-grown men have never said, you're not a boy anymore, you're a man, and we're going to show you what being a man is all about. How to be noble, how to be a servant, uh, things like this. And uh, that's why I think the Hebrew Roots movement is very appealing to Christians, because there's that level of ceremony that is awesome, that is so much for a person. Um, there's going to be a bar mitzvah, I'm sure you're aware of what that is. It's like the coming-of-age ceremony in the Jewish tradition for a young man out in the Yorkton area in a Messianic family there in just a couple weekends. And it's one of those things where, you know, you can take a ceremony like that for a young man when he comes of age, and you can run with it. You can be creative. The Spirit of God can guide you in making something that will be powerful and tailor-made to him, hey? So these are just a couple examples of, of the place that ceremony and ritual can play in our lives. And the Torah is a great place to start. You know, the biblical festivals, God's calendar, great place to start. And uh, that's, that's part of why we're here as a congregation. We're just, we're learning about these things. We're feeling it out. We're exchanging ideas. And uh, I'm looking forward to continuing with that. So that's something that I really jumped out at me from this portion. Okay, um, we had this like series of blessings and then a long litany of curses. And I just want to say something about that. God is not vindictive, capricious, or mean. He's not like, okay, I'm going to set you up here. I'm going to make you a really messed up human. And then I'm going to lay out all these curses. And then I'm going to set this nation on a fast track right down to these curses. I mean, that is not God. He gives each one of us the freedom to choose him, don't we? He gives us the freedom to choose life, to choose the blessing. But here's the question. If you only have two choices, you either choose him and the life that comes with him and the blessing that we can experience from our Father in heaven, or... What's the other option? His arch enemy, the dark prince, the enemy of humanity, the ultimate murderer. And let me ask you, if we're not embracing Messiah, if we're not following him wholeheartedly, then whose influence are we going to fall under? And how is it going to look? When you embrace the ultimate murderer, do you think there's a chance he's going to slaughter you? Or your family? Oh yeah, he, him who comes to destroy when a whole city rejects the law of God and just does what it wants, what do you think the chances are that it's going to come under that, that spiritual destructive dynamic? 
It's very high. Um, he's a thief. If we follow the thief, do you think there's a chance he's going to steal your happiness? He's going to rob you of all meaning in life. He is going to uh, take anything that's of value from you. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, he's a liar. And unfortunately, sometimes we won't be choosing God and something bad will happen and we'll say, how could God let this happen to me? And I hesitate to say that because there are times when people are living for him and something bad happens. So it's not like if something bad happens, it's indicative of our status with him, right? But uh, yeah, so all that to say, this litany of curses is just a very graphic and ex like expression of the consequences of not choosing Messiah. It's just what happens when you decide to marry the devil. You get treated badly. So that, that's how I see it. Um, couple of blessings that I really like that we can just f finish by uh, looking at and just let them minister to you. Firstly, it says that they're conditional when we are walking with him, when we're doing the stuff in his word that he said, which includes his commandments, which is something that's being restored to the body of Christ, then we're going to experience the blessings. Uh, sometimes the, the prosperity gospel tries to take the scissors and just cut that part out and apply it unilaterally to your life no matter what's going on and no matter what you choose. That's not right. That's taking the word out of context. These promises are for you. And there is an element of prosperity in the gospel. But it does depend on your choices. <laughs> A couple of them here. I like how he says he will give peace in the land. In Leviticus 26.6, he says he'll give shalom ba'aretz. Um, that's like shalom on a personal, a marital, a civic, and a national level. Also, shalom is one of the names of Messiah. He is Sar Shalom. He is the Prince of Peace. In Psalms several times, which are prophetic of him, it says in Hebrew, Ani Shalom, I am peace, but they are for war. So that's Messiah. It's, it's talking about how he will give Messiah's presence in our lives. That's a blessing. Uh, it also says in 26.6 that he will remove evil beasts from the land. That word in Hebrew is chayot raot, and it can mean harmful or evil beasts. It can mean negative life forms. Uh, I have a couple of creative applications of that for you. Would you like to hear them? You know, understanding evil beasts in the context of negative life forms. Uh, a, it's like a, a chaya is also like a corpus, okay, or a body. So keep that in mind. Uh, number one, terrorists. Number two, political entities that would compromise with globalists and sell the country of Israel out. Number three, corporations that have no moral conscience. Number four, doctors that spend more of their time murdering helpless infants than giving life to ailing adults. Uh, number four, genetically modified foods and the companies that force their carcinogenic agendas into the diet of unsuspecting citizenry. And finally, mosquitoes. <laughs> I, I like, those mosquitoes are evil beasts if you ask me. But anyway, I'm just giving you a couple examples of what evil beasts means to the Hebraic mindset. It means anything that's, that's harmful to society. So think about that. How can we be praying for Israel? When there's terrorism happening, when the country is selling out to globalists and to a, an agenda that's going to destroy the Jewish people, how can we pray for Israel? Do we just pray that God will bless them? Yeah, you can. But there's something that precedes God's blessing. What is it? Covenant fidelity, obedience to his commandments, that's correct. So what can we be praying for Israel? That God will save them from their sins. That they will encounter Messiah and salvation in Messiah. We can be praying that he will grant repentance 
in the land of Israel. That's how we can be praying strategically. And then all those evil beasts in their various multi-headed forms, he'll clear them out, no problem. And he will grant shalom in the land. So we can leave it at that for today. Um, here's something cool. Did you notice how the book of Luke closes? That's how we're going to finish our teaching today. Luke 24, 50 says, And he led them out as far as Betania, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Uh, have you ever wondered what that blessing was? If Yeshua was our high priest and there was a specific blessing given in the Torah with which the priests would bless Israel, maybe it was that blessing that we finished our, our, uh, our times with on a regular basis, hey? So having said that, why don't, we, why don't we finish with that blessing and just think about our Savior after he was raised from the dead, lifting up his hands, blessing us as a messianic community for the last 2,000 years and blessing us as families and as, as individual people. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you in your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page where you can make a one-time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So, if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way, we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownofmessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.